Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us wandering the coastal lanes of Suffolk, peering down from a crumbling cliff towards the bleached hulk of an old fishing boat poking from the sand, the marram grass rustling in the wind like silk, a sense of uneasiness pervading everything. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and we're recording today in a bathysphere. Yes. <laughs> we're not normally in this room. What do you think? I think it's quite good. But it's kind of appropriate, as you'll see, for the for the, uh, the, the the kind of the resonance of the text that we're here to discuss. So joining us today is Philip Hoare. Hello. Hello. Philip is a broadcaster, <laughs> curator, filmmaker and writer whose books include biographies of Stephen Tennant and Noel Coward, the historical studies Wild Last Stand, Spike Island, the memory of a military hospital, which is a particularly good one. <laughs> I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> I, full disclosure, listeners, yes. I, I edited that book <laughs> with Philip, but the, the quality of it is nothing to do with me and all to do with him. <laughs> and uh, England's Lost Eden, his book, Leviathan or the Whale, won the 2009 BBC Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction and his most recent book, a Rising... if I may say so, Philip. One of my favourite books ever. Thank you very much. And kind of you. I can go now, can't I? <laughs> <laughs> We're done. That's what I came for. And his most recent book, Rising Tide, Falling Star, is published by Fourth Estate. Philip presented the BBC Arena film The Hunt for Moby Dick and directed three films for BBC's Whale Night. He is Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Southampton and co-curator of the Moby Dick Big Read, an amazing thing which yeah. you should check out at mobydickbigread.com. He also goes swimming every morning <laughs> at what time? Three o'clock. Depends where the tide is. But, you know, and Sometimes three. Sometimes and what three. do you have as a reward for your swim? You were telling me earlier. Five ginger biscuits. That's amazing. And all before 5am. A long time before 5 a.m. Yeah. And how long have you done that routine? Well, that's been, it's only been getting kind of really quite extreme in the past five years, really, just as I get to know. I didn't learn to swim until I was about 29. In fact, just down the road from where we're speaking, down in Haggerston Baths. So I'm making up for lost time. Amazing. Also joining us today is all the way from Berwick on Tweed, <laughs> the writer Jesse Greengrass. Hello, Jesse. Hello. Jessie is the author of two books, her short story collection, An Account of the Decline of the Great Orc According to One Who Saw It, won the Edge Hill Prize and a Somerset Maugham Award, and was enthusiastically praised by my colleague John Mitchinson in the episode of Batlisted devoted to Against Nature by Huisman, so you can go back and check our bona fides on that. <laughs> and her novel Sight was published in 2018 and was shortlisted for the Women's Prize and the James Tate Black Memorial Prize and longlisted for the Welcome Prize. Jessie lives in Northumberland with her partner, their two children, and what time do you get up in the morning because of that? Uh, about half past five, yeah. But, I mean, maybe I should get up an hour earlier and go for a swim every morning. <laughs> I feel like it. I'm being lazy now. Um, and what happened to you yeah, on the train? Exciting news today, Jesse. Come on. Oh, I finished my I, book. Yeah. Hooray! Your next book. You heard it here first, everyone. Yeah. The new Jesse Greengrass novel, which will be published at some point in the future. Although finished. I have to go back to the beginning and read it through. It might be terrible. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. I think it's very unlikely that it will be <laughs> terrible. Anyway, the book that Jesse and Philip are joining us to discuss today is The Rings of Saturn by W.G. Sebald better known as Max to, to people who knew him. First published in German by Eichborn Verlag in 1995 and in an English translation by Michael Hultz by the Harvel Press in 1998. But before we wander off towards Suffolk, John, what have you been reading this week? Um, well, <laughs> it seems to be the, the week for masterpieces. I've been reading a, a book that has blown me away. Um, I expected it to be good, but I don't think I expected to enjoy it in quite the visceral way I did. It is Les Années, The Years by Annie Ernaux, a French writer with a fantastically prize-winning reputation. In this book, I think she won the, the Prix Renaudot in France and the Premio Strega in Italy. And in 2017, she was awarded the Marguerite Yourcenar Prize for her life's work. It is a kind of an autobiography. And I say a kind of an autobiography because... We're about to talk about the man who dissolves boundaries between genres. Nothing I've read in, in recent times has done that 
as well as Annie Erno has done here. It is a memoir that is, stretches from 60 years, from 1940 to now. And what she does in a very different way from, let's say, uh, Georges Perec, you know, the Je me souviens, you know, I remember, mm -hmm. but similar in the way that it, it's a bricolage of sensual uh, uh, memories, of um, brand names, of uh, uh, it's also technology, you know, starting off with, with writing and going right through to there's a very funny bit at the end playing on the Nintendo Wii with grandchildren. So it's, a, it's an attempt to write a genuinely kind of meaningful autobiography without falling into the, the usual traps. She says towards the end of the book that by retrieving the memory of collective memory in an individual memory, she will capture the lived dimension of history. So it's incredibly ambitious, and yet it works like a dream. At one level, you can read it as a sort of race through 60 years of French culture and, and, and the development of a, of, 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 a, of a human being's emotional life, intellectual life, spiritual life, but also it's everything that's going on around her. It's a really, really, really profound book. And, and how long is exquisitely it? Exquisitely translated. It's <laughs> tell you how long it is. It's 225 oh. of your English pages. It's exquisitely translated. Uh, oh. By Alison Strayer, uh -huh. who's a Canadian translator. <clears throat> I mean, I you know I don't read my French isn't good enough to read it anything but haltingly. I'm going to read you a very small passage from uh, Ose Ortega y Gasset. But all we have is our history, and it does not belong to us. All the twilight images. I mean, a lot of the book is remember photograph, finding photographs and remembering the, the moments. All the twilight images of the early years, the pools of light from a summer Sunday. Images from dreams in which the dead parents come back to life and you walk down indefinable roads. The image of Scarlett O'Hara dragging the Yankee soldier she has just killed up the stairs, then running through the streets of Atlanta in search of a doctor for Melanie who is about to give birth. Of Molly Bloom who lies next to her husband, remembering the first time a boy kissed her and she said yes, yes, yes. Of Elizabeth Drummond murdered with her parents on a road in Lourdes in 1952. The images, real or imaginary, that follow us all the way into sleep. The images of a moment bathed in a light that is theirs alone. They will all vanish at the same time, like the millions of images that lay behind the foreheads of the grandparents, dead for half a century, and of the parents also dead. Images in which we appeared as a little girl in the midst of beings who died before we were born, just as in our own memories, our small children are there next to our parents and schoolmates. And one day we'll appear in our children's memories, among their grandchildren and people not yet born. Like sexual desire, memory never stops. It pairs the dead with the living, real with imaginary beings, dreams with history. That book do. Oh, that's good. I mean, it's, it's just, published by Fitzcarraldo, isn't it? It's published brilliantly in the Fitzcarraldo. Uh, as a as a memoir, but it is um, it's as interesting and as stimulating a book as I've read all year. And now, Andy, what have you been reading? Um, so I've been reading a lot of poetry this year, as regular listeners will be aware. And um, I read a book two weeks ago, uh, which is as good as any poetry that I've read this year from any era. And I was going to talk about this book anyway. Uh, and then it was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry a week ago, and then a couple of days ago from when we were recording it, won the Forward Prize for Poetry for Best Collection. And I don't tell you that, listeners, as a way of saying, oh, my, my eye is pretty good. I tell you it because it's almost self-evident when you read Vertigo and Ghost by Fiona Benson that you are reading what is probably going to be thought of as a classic and I wouldn't say that lightly, just as I don't use phrases like I couldn't put it down lightly. <laughs> uh, I do think this has the makings of a classic. Certainly, it engages with our current historical moment. There are two parts to this collection. The first of which rechannels the Greek myths of Zeus as a transformative power into Zeus, as it says here on the jacket flap, as a serial rapist for whom women are prey and sex is weaponized. Uh, it is extremely distressing 
funny, uh, clever. I, I almost want to say I like it despite the framework of the Greek myths. Because as Fiona Benson has said, she was slightly worried that the Greek using the myths would cushion the blow, would put a scaffolding or a fence around the things that she wanted to write about. And it's a mark of the, the brilliance of this uh, that A, that doesn't happen, and B, I am not entirely comfortable with reading out most of the first half of the book here on the podcast. I urge you to read it. It's one of the most dramatic and affecting things that I have read this year, poetry or not. In the second half of the book, it becomes a intimate and moving document about family life and I think depression and I'm going to read a poem from late in the sequence called hide and seek and what I would say to you uh, is this has some upsetting stuff in it so you might want to go forward a few minutes about two minutes but I think this is a remarkable uh, piece of work Hide and seek. After her swim, I wrap my child warm and take her to the changing room and lay her down to dry. She holds the corners of the towel up over her face like a soft turquoise tent and yells, Hide and seek! Hide and seek! I lift an edge and shout, Boo! And she shrieks with laughter. I can feel the heat rising from her body and smell the chlorine. She hides again, and again I peek under and she's beside herself with happiness. She's at an age where she thinks that if she just stands still in the middle of the lawn, I will not see her, that somehow she is gone. But always, in the pockets behind this game, there is this residue, this constriction, Families squeezed behind false walls or hidden under the floor. I think of the soldier sensing the hollow under his soul and prying up the board on all those cramped and flinching humans. But mostly, I think of the mothers, their hearts jumping out of their mouths trying to shush their children. My firstborn now who's never been able to do as she's told, how she'd have writhed and screamed and bitten like a cat if I'd tried to hold her quiet, how I'd have hurt her, clamping her mouth, trying to keep her still. The trap door is always opening. The women and children are herded into the yard. And I ask myself if, when my daughters were pulled from me, I would fight and scream to keep them, or let them go gently, knowing there was nothing to be done. If we were pushed into the showers, would I pretend it was only time to get them clean? We are not meant to write of the shower, we who were not there. But on bad days, it's all I can think of. The mothers trying to shield their children with their bodies under the showers, screaming for mercy, begging for rain and it's never over. Here are the children riding to the border in fridges as the air becomes hot and thin, their tiny bodies glowing like bright sardines on the custom officer's handheld scan. And here is the tribesman, carrying your husband's genitals and a bloody machete, and you are a mother running for your life with a baby tied to your back and two children by the hand but one small son is falling behind. Jesus fucking Christ, I don't know who I'm teaching you to hide from, but look how eagerly you learn. We'll pick this up again after some adverts. Stay tuned to this. The Rings of Saturn. Jesse, let me ask you first. Can you remember when you first read this book or where you first came across Sabalt's work? Yeah, so this was the first of his books that I read and it must have been 2002 or 2003 
And I've been trying to remember who gave it to me. I think that it might have been my mum or it might have been a very good friend of mine. And I think that at the same time, they both sort of suggested that I read it. And it was very peculiar. My grandparents have always lived on the Suffolk coast. So in very much in this sort of area. Um, and my grandfather was in the Merchant Navy and then later on became a river pilot up, up the Thames estuary. Um, and he left school very young and was um, was completely self-educated. So he would go off on these voyages and he'd pick a subject and that would be the subject that he was going to learn about on this voyage. Um, so he knew an extraordinary amount of stuff and he would take me when I was a child to all of these places. We'd go to Dunwich, um, we'd go and look at all the Roman roads and when we went there, we would kind of sit in the car and then we'd get out of the car and he would just talk to me um, about all of these things that he knew. So when I first read this book, it was so kind of familiar and it felt so personal. It felt like this book was kind of written for, like, not to sound terrible, but it did feel like it was kind of written for me specifically. And reading it again, um, I wonder how familiar, like how, how, whether that's quite common actually, because it's so, yeah. so there's so much in it. It's so elusive. So depending on your particular kind of areas of interest, I wonder whether lots of people will read it and think, gosh, this is, this is specific. This is for me. Um, People's response to Sabal's work and to this book in particular uh, is so um, deep and passionate. I think yeah. you're right. I think people do find something in it that speaks to them. Philip, when did you first read Max Sabald? Well, I was given the book. I realised, I looked at the inscription and I've got two copies of the Harvard edition, which is such a beautiful thing in itself that it makes you want to read it because it is a work of art and the production values are just exquisite. But I was given it by two really very, very good friends who, um, one's Adam, who's a filmmaker, another is Neil, who's a singer and songwriter. People who I really respect and who've been part of my creative life. They've been really part of my creative life. So I knew this was a, this was a weighted gift. It was my birthday, <laughs> 2000. So I knew I had to take notice. Uh, and I was actually halfway through writing that book for you, Andy. Indeed. Spike Island. Indeed. And I mean, I don't know whether you were conscious. I mean, I don't know whether I was conscious, but it changed me as a writer. And I mean, it changed the way I was writing. I was writing this book about this military hospital, which was built a huge quarter of a mile long building built on the shores of Southampton water close to where I live. And it was kind of act of retrieval. I didn't really know how I was going to write this book. And, and both my friends thought that this would be helpful. I don't know whether it was helpful, actually, because it's, <laughs> it's rather like when Herman Melville met Nathaniel Hawthorne. He, <laughs> Melville started writing this grand adventure of the South Sea fisheries, the whale fisheries, and thought he was going to write a real <laughs> blockbuster, you know. And then he meets Nathaniel Hawthorne and Storm and Drang and the Salem Witch Trial and every kind of dark Gothic thing falls upon Melville's shoulders and he creates Moby Dick. And uh, that's kind of what I've been doing ever since reading that book right Jesse it's that sense of something so intimate so physically intimate the cyclical nature of it the endlessness of it last year I reread it last year I was so pleased to be asked to do this because I reread it last year because I'd had a long operation I had a, a three-hour operation in which I was conscious throughout this this operation I'd been speaking to the surgeons and you're really high because you are like on all sorts of stuff which is running through your body and I remembered and I was obviously thinking about Max because I said have you have you ever seen Rembrandt's uh, Dr. Talks the anatomy lesson and, and the surgeon says we don't usually discuss culture in here <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had this vision of myself you know like being described by Max lying on this table and unetherized on the table because I wasn't etherized, you know and when I got back home and, and I'd lied because they say have you got someone at home to look after you and I said yeah 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 and of course I hadn't um, and I woke up and I realized I was floating in this weird world and I didn't know what to do and I knew my my means of salvation was to go back to the rings of Saturn. It was mm. a solace. Mm. It was a solace. It was the only thing I could... Because books, you know, are like friends. They betray you after a while. Uh, and I wondered whether this book had betrayed me, but it hadn't. 
I, I can I just flag the listeners. I, that I think is my favourite thing any guest has ever said on an episode of this podcast today. So already we're we're operating at a high level. Philip, I remember the creative process behind Spike Island being intense in the best way. That you were forging, as you saw it, new ground whenever you came back to the material, and really. As an editor, my job was to try and make a judgment on when we had reached the the peak moment, right? And I can remember you talking about reading Sebout. So I'll vouch for the, your, your memory Thank there. You. I'd also like to say that I first read The Emigrants and the Rings of Saturn in 1997 because I was given copies by Max's publisher, John Mitchinson. Indeed. John, do you want to tell us a bit about how you first read well, Sebald? I should say I was one of the, the team at Harvill. Um, Bill Swainson was the, was the commissioning editor. And I first discovered Sebald on a flight to America reading the manuscript that, were, that had come in of the immigrants. And it was that very rare thing that happens when you're in a publishing house and you, by the time I disembarked at uh, JFK, I knew we had clearly a masterpiece. It was just something that was so unique and original. I remember very clearly we managed to persuade Waterstones to adopt it. In those days, to get a Waterstones Book of the Month, you, it was voted on by the shops. So I wrote handwritten letters to every one of the... 200 or so Waterstones managers saying, this is a masterpiece, please, please, please support it. And they voted for it. And I still remember ringing um, Max's wife saying, he's not here. I said, well, could you tell him that it's going to be Waterstones Book of the Month? And she said, oh, Max will be thrilled. Well, as thrilled as Max is about anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we're going to listen to some clips of Max's brilliantly lugubrious voice later on. But but the, the next book, which was this book, was kind of the one that you could... I don't know, I, I was saying this to Andy the other day, I feel that The Rings of Saturn is like a kind of the fruiting body of a vast mycelial network. Um, and it, it's, it, it means so much to so many different people. It can be read in so many different ways. One important publishing story that's connected with it is that the book in German has a subtitle, which is called An English Pilgrimage. And we decided that we didn't want to call it that because we felt it would it would close the book down in a way that Max didn't want. I mean, famously, Max wanted it to be in every single category going. We had to settle with three, which was fiction, history, and travel. We should remind ourselves and listeners that The Rings of Saturn, The Emigrants, and Vertigo are all novels Although, are they novels? We'll, 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 but here's Max Sebelt talking about the issue of truth in his work. Yeah. There's the possibility for the same sleight of hand that makes uh, crime fiction possible because it's all, it can be all arranged retrospect. So I had the clipping. I only needed to invent the character that goes with it and associate him with the main figure in the text. In this case, it happens to be true. Most of them are true, but there are several which I made up. And uh, so, you know, the reader must be constantly asking, uh, is this so or isn't it so? And of course, this is one of the central problems of fiction. The 19th century authors are always at pains to point out that they found this manuscript in a bedroom in Husum, and uh, therefore it's true. They're not telling a story they've made up, they're recording real life. And of course, in a sense, we still have that problem as narrators. And many writers fudge it or obscure it. When you first read it, Jesse, do you remember stopping and thinking to yourself, what is this book? Um, No, but I do remember thinking, oh, God, like, what a relief. It doesn't doesn't matter, actually. (laughs) And I, I really thought, that's it. We're done. We've done with that. We don't have to. We don't have to do that question anymore. The world has opened up. We can write books in which people just think about things. If only that had. <laughs> if only that brave new world had occurred. I don't think I want to know. I don't think I'm interested in it. I think it, mm. it is a book which is um, about so many things, and it, 
you know, obviously it is kind of incredibly well constructed and and thoughtfully put together and and uh, but reads as though it is just somebody sort of thinking to themselves over the course of an afternoon. It feels now the same way that it felt when I first read it, that it is the future in some way. That mm. if only we could all sort of figure this out, then we'd be let into a world in which we could kind of relax those boundaries and stop worrying so much about whether things are novels or not. Could you read us a, a, a bit? Did you choose a passage to, uh, to read? Yeah, I did. I, quite a short passage. So this is, I don't know, about a quarter of the way into the book. And I've got some notes here because I was thinking, how can you, one of the difficulties of picking a passage is, <laughs> yeah. is kind of kind of jumping into it. There's always something that went beforehand. So I thought, well, I'll try and explain what's been going on. And, and this is a bit in which he, he remembers being in Southwold, looking at the sea, uh, remembering being in The Hague, looking at the sea from the other side. Uh, and he'd gone to The Hague to look at this picture, The Anatomy Lesson, which in the book he's already mentioned several times in connection with several other things. So you've already got the sense that it's this kind of enormous network. It's extraordinary. Um, and, and this is what he says at this point. Diderot, in one of his travel journals, described Holland as the Egypt of Europe, where one might cross the fields in a boat and, as far as the eye could see, there would be scarcely anything to break the flooded surface of the plain. In that curious country, he wrote, the most modest rise gave one the loftiest sensation, and for Diderot there was nothing more satisfying to the human mind than the neat Dutch towns with their straight, tree-lined canals, exemplary in every respect. Settlement succeeded settlement, just as if they had been conjured up overnight by the hand of an artist in accordance with some carefully worked-out plan, wrote Diderot, and even in the heart of the largest of them, one still felt one was out in the country. The Hague at that time, with a population of about 40,000, he felt was the loveliest village on earth, and the road from the town to the Strand at Scheveningen, a promenade without equal. It was not easy to appreciate these observations as I walked along Park Strat towards Scheveningen. Here and there stood a fine villa in its garden, but otherwise there was nothing to afford me any respite. Perhaps I had gone the wrong way, as so often in unfamiliar cities. In Scheveningen, where I had hoped to be able to see the sea from a distance, I walked for a long time in the shadow of tall apartment blocks, as if at the bottom of a ravine. When at last I reached the beach, I was so tired that I lay down and slept till the afternoon. I heard the surge of the sea and, half-dreaming, understood every word of Dutch for the first time in my life and believed I had arrived and was home. Oh, it's so brilliant. Yeah. What about that, Philip, that idea of dreaming and arriving home these are these are really wistful melancholy concepts aren't they that that eddy through Sobelt's work we've entered a very Sibaldian period here because can you guess what I was going to read <laughs> oh <laughs> not your reading but the reading afterwards Go and on. I'll just lead up to that if I may do it because what you say, Andy, is very true. And I think the whole notion of the book is this inexorable movement towards meaning to some kind of context for what we are being told. This cabinet of curiosities, this wunderkammer of things that he brings together, gathered from his memory, his invention, from our collective history, from the past, from the future, from the present. And to me, it's this inexorable movement towards the shore, as you intimate in that reading. And this sense of this place, this land, which is tipping into the ocean. I mean, actually, Britain is physically tipping into the North Sea. You know, these coasts are the most rapidly eroding. And it's almost as though the sea is going to disappear or the shore is going to disappear before he even gets there in a mm. way. And it's back to Europe, over Dogger land, over this flooded land, over Thomas Brown, his buried urns over Edward Fitzgerald and his tinted glasses and his black Labrador. There's a, always a dog somewhere in Sibold's world. Mm. Very interesting. Mm. That's a, we can talk about that in a minute because I think it's really interesting where that comes from. But he ends up, and if you don't mind me launching into a reading after that, just because by Sibaldian <laughs> coincidence, I'm picking up where Jesse left off. That evening in Amsterdam... I sat in the peace of the lounge of a private hotel by the Vondel Park, which I knew from earlier visits, and made notes on the stations of my journey, now almost at an end. 
the days I had spent on various inquiries at Bad Kissingen, the panic attack in Baden, the boat excursion on Lake Zurich, my run of good luck at the casino in Lindau, and my visits to the Alt Pinakothek in Munich, and to the grave of my patron saint in Nuremberg, of whom legend has it that he was the son of a king from Dacia or Denmark, who married a French princess in Paris. During the wedding night, the story goes, he was afflicted with a sense of profound unworthiness. Today, he is supposed to have said to his bride, our bodies are adorned, but tomorrow they will be food for worms. Before the break of day, he fled, making pilgrimage to Italy, where he lived in solitude till he felt the power to work miracles rising within him. After saving the Anglo-Saxon princes Winnebald and Wunnebald from certain starvation with a loaf of bread baked from ashes and brought to them by a celestial messenger, and after preaching a celebrated sermon in Vincenza, he went over the Alps to Germany. At Regensburg, he crossed the Danube on his cloak and there made a broken glass hole again and in the house of a wheelwright, too mean to spare the kindling, he lit a fire with icicles. This story of the burning of the frozen substance of life has of late meant much to me. And I wonder now whether inner coldness and desolation may not be the condition for making the world believe, by a kind of fraudulent showmanship, that one's own wretched heart is still aglow. Be that as it may, my namesake is said to have performed many more miracles in his hermitage, in the imperial forests between the rivers Regnitz and Pegnitz, and to have healed the sick before his corpse, as he had ordained, was born on a cart drawn by two oxen to the place where his grave is to this day. Now, what follows in the book is an amazing description of this sarcophagus in St. Sebald's yeah. Church in Nuremberg. So I went on my own pilgrimage there this year, and I found this, which is the leaflet that you get to this extraordinary... And this is the same image of this extraordinary thing which looks like a sort of Gothic lorry. And actually, the saint, St. Sebald, is, is, in, in there. is in this silver casket. Sitting on snails, right? It's... Sitting on snails at the bottom, yeah. but, and, and with dolphins yeah. and tritons and, a, and, and Hercules with an enormous erection. <laughs> but St. Sebald is on wheels... So he could be wheeled so around the town for for mm. uh, display. Um, and what I does it, you're holding up the the leaflet, which says at the top in in 1980 block type. <laughs> Very much. Das Grab des Heiligen Sebald zu yeah. Nuremberg, the which means the grave of the Saint Sebald of Nuremberg. That's my that. Marvelous. Thank you um, for bringing that. Yeah. In. I'm going to take a little picture of that. Mm. See if we can put but, that up on the I mean, website. Extraordinary that you should both choose the same kind of uh, from the same it's bit. Not extraordinary, John. No, of course it isn't. This book is like a brain, isn't it? It's the mm. connections. I mean, we can talk about the influence of Sobald, and there has been a huge influence. That a couple of things watching Grant G's amazing film Patience um, after Sobald recently, Adam Phillips said something that I love, which he said that he said the book is irradiated with uh, melancholy, which is a beautiful phrase for how it feels. John, you're talking about Grant G's film Patience, which I strongly recommend yes. to beautiful uh, listeners. It's a fantastic film. Uh, if you can track down a copy of the DVD, inside the insert on the DVD is Rick Moody, the novelist Rick Moody, has created a flowchart <laughs> for everything that happens in The Rings of Saturn. And one of the things that's so great about it is you look at this map that he's made and you think, but that's not my experience of reading the book at all. And when you were both reading your sections there, one of the things I found difficult about Sebald, which now I love, of course, is 
rather like the piece of Eno's music we heard at the top, there is a, a almost, um, you can't discern how one part has been bolted onto another. There is a drift of imagery and ideas it, which keeps going. It's not it logical appear, it at appear, all. It right? appears incredibly like it's some bloke wandering around thinking of things. The degree of, 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 of structure. Just in the first chapter alone, I, you know, you go notice he starts with the idea that he's in a hospital room and that, that there's only one, this one bit of light. The whole of the chapter is about burial. The two academics whose rooms are completely covered in paper. Then he moves to the anatomy lesson, and there's an amazing bit where he, he, he sees it's, again, things, liminal kind of movements from shadow to light, shadow to light, all the way through the chapter. He alone sees that the greenish annihilated body, he alone sees the shadow and the half-open mouth over the dead man's eyes. And this goes right the way through. Brown says, all knowledge is enveloped in darkness. And then, of course, Brown's break book, which is the urn burial, about discovering things that have been locked, memories, scraps of silk, this is not somebody having a breakdown, walking through the countryside, observing nature. This is a, a, a layered, complex, brilliant, kind of multifaceted work of art. Also, rather droll. I mean, I can, Very droll. I can remember reading 20 years ago the scene in, in eating the dreadful fish and chips yes. in, the, in the awful <laughs> hotel and laughing out loud right? I, I actually nearly i nearly read that bit because i do think it's very funny and also heartbreaking like utterly heartbreaking when at the end he kind of then looks out the window and there's just the sea which appears not to move that's and that's right, it that's you're, right. you're sort of you're like well I, this was funny and now i'm destroyed uh, yes i mean there is there is that kind <laughs> of slightly <laughs> germanic i was saying almost herzogian kind of melancholy but there's so much going on in this book Normally, we would recap a bit of the biographical uh, data on Max Sabel's life, but we have a special guest to do it for us, who I think... Um, are you there, Robert? Sebald, Winifred Georg Sebald, was born in Wertheim Algai in the Bavarian Alps in 1944. He studied in Germany at Freiburg, and in 1967, he moved to England, first to Manchester, and then to East Anglia, to Norwich, where he settled and lived out his working life as a professor of European literatures and literature and translation at, at the University of East Anglia. And success came late to him. He wrote his books first in German and then carefully oversaw their translation into English and it was when the books began to appear in English that his rise in the English-speaking literary world began. So uh, Robert McFarlane calling from a train there to uh, <laughs> give us uh, that's, uh, that's an excerpt from Patience, the film we were talking about, which, again, if you can find a copy, um, please have a look. Um, could we talk a bit about the formal, innovative nature of Sebald's work, specifically the photographs. I think I'm right in saying that we're all very familiar now with photographs being dropped into the text of books. This is one of the first... I mean, if, if this was all Sebald had done, we'd still be thinking about him and talking about him. Yeah. But the idea of dropping in photographs which either do or don't comment on what you're reading and may or may not relate to one another seems to me incredibly bold. Mm. Sebald as not writer, but writer and artist mm. simultaneously. Mm. There's um, Camera Lucida, Roland Barthes, he talks about, and that's, that's the book that I quite often think of in connection with this. He also, it's also a sort of, what it's also a book where it's very hard to classify is it philosophy or um memoir and he also kind of it's very ruminative and he also mm. ha has mm. photographs although he talks about them more directly mm. but he also uses photographs in the text and it's uh, also i mean it goes back to walter benjamin i think doesn't it what benjamin talks about images and the power of them um and what's really interesting, I think, is that actually what you say, Andy, is really true, and Jesse, is that actually that's why this book appeals to contemporary artists um, who works with people like Tessa Dean, for instance. Max talked about echo space, which is the space where the words stop 
and the picture takes over. So are you reading it like a caption? Are you reading as that part of this narrative becomes suddenly becomes visual? And also, by an act of fraudulent showmanship, as he said, mm-hmm. <laughs> so many of them are fake. Yeah. So many of them are fake. He was, I mean, John, you will know better than I, but he was a regular visitor to the copy shop in Norwich, wasn't yeah. he? Um, he? He'd get a perfectly good photograph and then photocopy the photocopy. This is my favourite because you'd get that from people. Why are the photos so shit? <laughs> because Max wants them to be like that. They're so powerful that on that Sunday morning when I opened The Independent on Sunday, on page two, I saw a picture of Max and his death announced. I thought it was a subordian construct. (laughs) I mean, just because the way he deals with biography and people, the way he, you know, like Roger Casement, the way he talks about Roger Casement, these are are people who are shifting through time and space in his head. Um, And that sense of what's fictional and what's non-fictional about people's lives i know even the, when he's talking about the nurses in the first chapter in the hospital and he's talking about katie and lizzie but he's very generous to them he says katie or lizzie was describing a holiday on malta where she said the maltese with a death-defying insouciance quite beyond comprehension drove neither on the left nor on the right but always on the shady side of the road mm-hmm. <laughs> again it's just even a little anecdote yeah. like yeah. that is stitched into yeah. it we've got a purpose. clip here now this is quite a long clip but i wanted to include the whole thing because Sabel is speaking here without notes. Um, he's asked about photography and then he develops his thought while he's talking. And I thought it was really, for anyone who's read Sabel, you know, the idea of great writers, some great writers write as they talk. When you hear them talk, they have the cadences which you're familiar with. Well, I think you may recognise this. Yes, I'm not entirely sure that... I'm able to make sense out out of, you know, whatever I come across at all, except in the effort of recording it. So uh, whatever sense there is, is primarily an aesthetic sense. And I realise, you know, that making in prose a decent pattern out of what happens to come your way is uh, a preoccupation with, which, in a sense, has no higher ambitions, really, than for a brief moment in time to rescue something out of that stream of history that keeps rushing past. And this is why I have, among other reasons, why I have photographs in the text, because the photograph is perhaps the paradigm of it. The photograph is meant to get lost somewhere in a box in an attic is a, a nomadic thing that uh, you know has a small chance only to survive and i think we all know that feeling you know when we come accidentally across a photographic document being of one of our lost relatives being of a totally unknown person and we get the sense of appeal They're stepping out, having been found by somebody after decades or half centuries, having been found by somebody, all of a sudden they come stepping back over the threshold and they say, we were here two months and please uh, take care of us for a while. We're all sitting silent because I've got goosebumps. I don't know about you. I find that an incredibly interesting, moving, you know, uh, significant Listening to that, the, the idea of rescue and of photographs and, the, 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 and that these things living, having a separate life. Look that, after us for a while. That's the thing. That's the Sabaldian moment, like isn't it? The idea that the, the thing will and shift and go. And, I mean, he's so, he, he, again, precision is the thing. Philip, I happen to know that your book, Spike Island, was read by Max, wasn't it? Yeah. It must have been you, Andy. Did I ask you to send it to him? Someone yeah. sent him. It was you, wasn't yeah, it? Was it? Me, yeah. And then this letter arrives in the post, my suburban house in Southampton, and uh, I pull it out and there's a postcard of painting. I vaguely recognise it. It's Poussin's Mirage. 
And I'm not going to read it because it's embarrassing. You were thrilled. Yeah. I was thrilled. Yeah. So I got a series of postcards. This is even more embarrassing. I'm not going to read it. Um, Do you want me to read it? No. (laughs) As your former editor. uh, No, I don't. I'm going to give you a copy of it though, Andy. Yeah, okay. His handwriting, as you can see, it's like, it's sort of almost Renaissance, this script. I know that this is a German school thing, a friend of mine... Yeah. Who is his it's contemporary? It's like French handwriting, isn't yes. it? They had it's the yes. very. It's so interesting, yeah. Um, but doesn't it speak to him? Um, and it's like, yeah, all good wishes ever yours, Max. This is a man <laughs> I never met, and that was dated 9th of September, two thousand and one. Two thousand and one. Um, Jesse, can I ask you? Do we think of Sebelt as a writer in translation when we read him? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't, and I, I keep having to sort of remind myself uh, as I'm reading that it is. But then I, it almost feels like that's sort of a part of it that that this idea that that it's a text which is kind of interpreted, or or that the words are not necessarily that they're not the words that he kind of wrote or spoke almost feels like it, that's a part of the book, this idea of kind of tr- tracing things backwards, tracing them through. And sometimes my German is terrible. Sometimes I've thought I could learn it um, just to read this. And, um, and, then, and then I've thought, well, I'm, I'm not sure that tracing it back in that way is sort of necessary. I feel like the prose exists almost in a European interzone. It isn't quite good English, while at the same time being wonderful English. Yeah. It, it has a precision mm. which we as English writers would mm. would not be so punctilious about, I think. Mm. I think. But then it's so hard, isn't it, to, to define what it is that makes a voice a voice. Philip? When I did actually see him and read, he refused to read in English. He let Anthea Bell really, in English. His translator, for yeah, translator. I mean, he was very, very particular, obviously, in, the, in the, the, the translation. His English was perfectly good enough for him to have written it. It's almost like he wanted the act of translation, that the act of translation, it's a very Sebaldian thing. But on the whole, I think it is possible to translate books at a level which makes them as valuable for the foreign reader as for the reader of the original language. Translators have to be extremely accomplished, and there are such people, fortunately, who are able to do this. Why don't I translate my own books? Well, the main reason is that I started writing very late in my mid-40s, and I haven't got the time, because I can already see the horizon looming. (laughs) And so, you know, uh, and I have another full-time job to attend to. And so becoming a translator as well as a writer, I think, would uh, overtax probably my nervous system. So I thought I'd better not do it, and quite apart from the fact that I don't entirely trust my English. I mean, I can, there is a great difference, you know, if you get a poor draft of a text and if you are reasonably competent in the second language, then you can perhaps improve on that draft. But that is not the same as doing the draft yourself in the first place. And so there are, you know, sometimes uh, two incompetent people can make a competent pair. <laughs> I'd just like to point out, um, in a rather sad but very Sebaldian moment, that that was recorded two months before Sebald's death in New York, in September 2001. Yeah. I mean... Which is, that that's around the time that I heard him speak. What's really interesting is that the, the distance is physical and he is a German in exile. He is like Thomas Mann. And when Thomas Mann left Europe in 1939, sailed from Southampton, where I live, he announced that German culture is moving to America for the duration. And I've just read Dr. Faustus, man's book, Dr. Faustus, which is mentioned in the Natural History of Destruction. 
because man is writing from one remove, looking at a Germany which he is not experiencing, where he experienced the rise of that regime, but he is writing from the Pacific Palisades on Venice Beach, looking through um, palm trees to Muscle Beach, where these Tadzios the, uh, that he's lusted after. Is, uh, this sense of looking back through the past as it's happening at this devastated land, at the, the thing that is never written about. That's the thing that's never really written about in The Rings of Saturn. It is and it isn't. It's that sense of there's always some absence to be filled in his creative language. But isn't that because of that distance? It's the, the physical distance of his removal from something he can't come to terms with because he's the son of a, you know, of a German Wehrmacht officer and because he can't come to terms with what the Germans did to other people. And that's true in Dr. Faustus, in man's writing. He can't come to terms because he, his own people haven't been able to come to terms with what was done to them in turn. There seems to me, I don't know how you feel about this, but in the, in the light of, of exactly that, particularly in The Emigrants, he writes about a series of people who kill themselves, yeah. not in a grand gesture, but in a way because the process that you've described can yeah. be lived it, with for so long yeah. and no longer. And certainly that opening chapter of The Emigrants, which is probably only 20 pages yeah, long, I mean, anyone who's read that will but, never, but you, never forget it, I think. You feel when you come to the first chapter of this book that the narrator, because it's important to say one of the things about this book is that the narrator is and isn't Max Zabot, and his ability to inhabit other voices and other, other, other consciousness through this book is one of the things. But you feel that he, when he says that the, the, you know about the dog star and and and, and summer that 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 the old superstition that certain ailments of the spirit and of the body are particularly likely to beset us under the sign of the dog star. At all events, in retrospect, I became preoccupied not only with the unaccustomed sense of freedom, but also with the paralyzing horror that had come over me at various times when confronted with the traces of destruction, reaching far back into the past, that were evident even in that remote place. You feel he's succumbing to some of the some of the same kind of melancholy, inward-looking, destructive uh, stuff that is that has led to the deaths of the people in the immigrants. It's, and his journey, his pilgrimage, which is you know a word that he used about what the book was, a religious journey for him, and con concerned with death, concerned with, in the end, the, the passage, the amazing final paragraph of the book with the silk mm. on the things and the, the leaving. It's amazing. Except that that, in the timescale of the book, that section in the hospital happens after. After the book. After, although the book takes you on that journey, there's always the sense that his, or the journey of, of the narrator, mm. is towards this hospital. Yeah. And isn't mentioned again, and, but, but kind of looms in your... Sort of mind as a yes, reader. he's he's already put the not yeah. so happy ending yeah. right at the front of yeah. the book. <laughs> well, also the beginning of the Rings of Saturn. Funnily enough, you finished a book on the way here, Yay. Sabaldian, <laughs> because the Rings of Saturn starts with him, him saying, "I had just finished yeah. a piece of work." Yeah. yeah, he's at liberty. He's striding out on this walk. Yeah, only you're never at liberty. <laughs> you're 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 set free to find something else to enclose you. Mm. I actually did get to beat him. Final time, I was, uh, and uh, and uh, and he was just just that walrus moustache, you know, nicotine stained. Um, he was going out for a quick fag outside, you know, outside the uh, uh, the festival hall, uh, Queen Elizabeth Hall, wasn't it? And uh, and um, and uh, and I sort of I introduced myself. Uh, he was with Boyd Tonkin, who was then mm. literary editor of the. Um, great supporter of Chabot's work of the uh, of the independent and um and I said you know I was introduced myself and he was very sweet and he said um he said this very good book you wrote there I hope you don't mind if I steal bits that's <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah I'll never find out what he might have stolen yeah. I, I, I do love that 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 you know the piece of uh, pseudo doxica 
Epidemica that I can't now find the reference to is that almost at the end of the isn't that brilliant? I thought yeah. that was I I I I can remember noticing that before, but that having reread it, I thought that was absolutely extraordinary and so clever and obviously kind of purposeful in exactly yeah. the way that everything in this book is kind of purposeful, but but seems entirely natural because obviously he could have, you know, and, it, and isn't that the strange thing? There's a Rather marvellous bit in the film where Ian Sinclair says the, the lanes of England are thick with psychogeographers <laughs> as, as a result of Sobolt, which is sort of true. I said to you, John, the other day, I feel Sobolt was claimed by yeah. psychogeography mm. and has been claimed by nature writing yeah, and is neither. Mm. Is neither. Yeah. Is, he, is, he is inimitable. He, he is, insofar as the word means anything, he is a historian. I mean, mm. I think he is somebody who is writing the kind of history. You said this right at the beginning, Jesse, that, that the future, that we, we can't write impartial kind of objective history. Mm. Uh, it just, it doesn't work in a, in a, in a, in a I mean, you also said, Philip, mm. which I love, with the prelapsarian, you know, the pre-internet, mm. it's a pre-internet mm. book. Mm-hmm. Um, before I ask final question before we wind up, I'd just like to say to listeners, if you are... A fan of Sabelt or a fan of The Rings of Saturn, in addition to Grant G's film Patience, where we can also recommend we can also recommend the podcast Curiously Specific, which is co-hosted by our former guest Lloyd Shepherd. Yeah, very much. Where so. they've attempted to visit various locations. Of course, like everyone does, who tries to walk parts of the Rings of Saturn before discovering they're not where they ought to be. Uh, (laughs) But that's a very interesting podcast. Another thing I'm always trying to crowbar into backlisted. I failed this time to get a clip in, but I would strongly recommend, if you like Sabalt, and especially if you like the Rings of Saturn, Patrick Keeler's films London... Robinson in Space and Robinson in Ruins. Robinson in Space in particular, which I think is 97. So there was clearly something in the air. The idea of a unfollowable historiography, soulful state of the nation travelogue, but in film rather than in book form, I cannot recommend that highly enough. That is a core text. So... We've talked a lot about Say About Work taken as a whole, and it is very rich, and clearly if you read one book, it will lead to another book. He has themes that he comes and goes from. We've discussed some of those. What is it about The Rings of Saturn that is unique? If it is unique, what is the thing about this particular book that speaks to people? I mean, I think it is, honestly, the closest book that I've ever counted to a perfect book. Like, it feels as though it is so complicated. There are so many things in it, but it is a single whole entity. It's like one of those very, very complicated cabinets that are so beautifully made that you can't see the joins. And it's absolutely extraordinary, I think. It's that sense that this is one entire thought that is being given to you. And it is a gift. And you can spend your life on it. And you should read it multiple times and some of those times you should read it carefully and some of them you should just let it kind of woozily sort of sweep over you think hang on we were reading about um, paintings and now (laughs) we're reading about silk and I don't know how that happened but that's fine that's okay (laughs) Philip what do you think which is why it's good to read it with opium running through your veins um (laughs) because it is one long dream as Jesse so beautifully puts it and you know, he talked about his work as being uh, analogous to taking, taking his dog for a walk at a black Labrador <laughs> and letting it off its leash in a field and the dog sniffs in one corner and sniffs in another corner and comes back with this kind of composite image of the field, a sort of nothingness. The book is about... When you've tried to describe the book, we've spent nearly an hour talking about this, but we still haven't got anywhere near... I know. <laughs> anywhere near the beauty, the transcendence, the funniness, the sexuality, the eroticism, the depth, the shallowness, the... You know, when I feel so pleased when I say to someone, have you read The Rings of Saturn? It's like I'm giving you an orgasm. <laughs> Oh, 
John, I seem to remember that was your sales pitch when you published it, wasn't it? You know, I, it, you, you touch on something. Like what I feel about this book is that there is no country. There is no such thing as England. There is no such thing as Great Britain. That It's the most European book, but it's not even the Europe. It's the world. There isn't a book I know that is as rich, and yet you go into it and the stuff that you've forgotten... And yet none of it, none of it's heavy. It, it is a miraculous book. It's, it's like a TARDIS. When you're inside it, it seems like it contains everything. And then you kind of come out of it again. You realise it's, it's ten sections. And he does that brilliant thing of, of describing them in, in, with the beginning of the book. So it sounds like, oh, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, I can see the shape. Or what. But it is a maze. You know, he gets lost in this book. And you get, you get lost in it every time you go The maze, it. the cross-section of which he compares to his own brain. brain. Yeah. <laughs> right? It is a book about the world, but it's also, it feels like it's a book about yourself, oneself, everyone's self. Yeah. It's like someone saying, it's okay. Like, it's, it, is, it is a sad thing to be a person. And that is all right for all of us. And, I mean, every uh, time. And that childish sense of curiosity as well. You know, that yeah. everything is still there to be discovered. Mm. That's, it's all there. The potentiality. About two months ago in a junk shop in Bangui, which is the nearest small town to, to where I live, I fished out of a box of cheap prints a little card which had a lichen on it, a dried lichen, and underneath it said in very neat handwriting, gathered from the tomb of Marshal Ney, Paris, 7th of July, 1833. And something like this, totally, you know, valueless as such, uh, somehow gets me going. Hearing Max's voice is actually very moving. But unfortunately, we're going to have to, our meanderings now must cease. Thank you to Jesse and to Philip for guiding us through the, uh, the, the maze and to Alana Chance for conducting us so surely and to Unbound for giving us the key to the door. Uh, you can download over 100 episodes of Backlisted, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading uh, by visiting our website, backlisted.fm. You can contact us on Twitter, via Facebook or Boundless. And uh, I would like to plug our two forthcoming gigs. On Wednesday, November the 13th, we are at Bookseller Crow in South London. We don't know yet. With whom? With or whom? on what? Or on what? <laughs> because Bookseller Crow is a fantastic bookshop which has been supportive to me and John and lots of writers that we know. So that's a benefit uh, podcast for them. So please come along to that. We do actually have some ideas. We're just, <laughs> we're we're not, just fixing them now. We're not being coy. And the other thing is our Christmas get-together stroke AGM is at the London Library on the evening of Wednesday, December the 11th, where we will be discussing A la recherche de ton perdu by Proust in French, John. So I hope you're, I hope you're, uh, you're good to go. Shush. We'll be back in a fortnight. Thank you for listening. And if you are still listening to this part of the podcast, I have borrowed something from the very popular Marvel films. So keep listening. I was always, as it were, tempted to declare openly from quite early on my great debt of gratitude to Thomas Bernhardt. But uh, I was also conscious of the fact that one oughtn't to do that too openly because then immediately one gets as put in, in a drawer which says uh, Thomas Bernhardt, uh, a follower of Thomas Bernhardt, etc. And uh, these labels never go away. Once one has them, they, they stay with one. So Bernhardt uh, single-handedly, I think, invented a new form of narrating, which uh, appealed to me from the start. Bernhardt's mode of, of telling a tale is related to all manner of things. I mean, not least the theatrical monologue. In the uh, early book uh, that bears the English title Gargoyles and in German is called Die Verstörung, the second, the whole of the second part of that is uh, 
the monologue of the Prince of Saurau, and it would make a wonderful piece on the stage. So it has the intensity of the presence, uh, presence that one can experience in the theatre, and he brings that to fiction. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.